Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. This is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now my guest this week is a great of the sport. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's a multiple Australian touring car champ, Sandown 500 winner, triple challenge dominator and gentleman of the sport. Glenn Seaton is the guest on the podcast this week and it's great timing because his new book, Seto, the official racing history of Glenn Seaton is out this week. It's a 320-page hardcover book. You've got to get yourself a copy. Perfect Christmas present. Jump on our online store and you can order yours. We're going to talk about with Glenn the book, the process of putting the book together, how he thought he would never, ever do a book until someone twisted his arm. And we talk about some of the stories that are in this book as well. We cover Bathurst 1995, which is probably the most asked about topic he gets from fans. We talk about his very, well, probably overlooked and forgotten one-off run in the Nissan Bluebird Group C car in Tasmania in 1984. We take a look at his long friendship with Mark Scaife, and he opens up about a very serious offer to join a Holden team full-time in 2002-2003. It's a story not many of you will have heard of before. So here we go, buckle up, time to start. Glenn Seaton on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken. Well, we've had many, many people ask, when is Glenn Seaton coming on the V8 Sleuth Podcast? The answer, right here, right now. Glenn Seaton, welcome. It has taken us a little while, but yeah, you're here. Ha- welcome along. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. It's good to, good to be on board. And um, naturally, uh, through the motor racing industry, you're well known for your history. So I imagine you've got a fair bit of history on me today to go through some questions and uh, yeah, try and answer them. But because as I've got older, I've lost a lot of memories of the old days. Oh, so. funny that, funny that. <laughs> you know, I struggle a bit to find some uh, real answers. Well, <laughs> I've got to But I can make them up. Motorsport's all about making up the right answer, isn't it? Tell them what they want to hear, Glenn. Tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> now, you, you do have one way of remembering some of the stuff that's gone on over your amazing career because... You've put together, and I'll admit, I've been involved in this, you've done a book, which, did you ever think that you would ever do a book? No, I didn't really, Um, and the influence from yourself has only sort of brought me out to do it, to be honest, because I would never have done it. Um, I suppose uh, I've been involved in motorsport for so many years, and you just do your job and do what you enjoy and what your hobby and what your passion and also what your profession is without even thinking about what you've created throughout all those years and what you've done. And you really, I suppose I look at it based on people don't really want to hear what I've, what I've been through and what I've done and how motor racing's been to me and all that sort of stuff because I suppose I just look at it as it's probably just a boring story, to be honest. Um, but then when I went into it and, and, and you pushed me into doing it, um, to go over the years and to see where I come from from years ago as a kid from Moorbank through to where I am today, um, it was really good to go through because I forgot about a lot of stuff, um, not in, as in forgot about it subconsciously, but forgot about it as in just day-to-day life uh, of what uh, 
motor racing did for me and, and what the family side of it was with um, in motorsport, naturally being brought up in a motorsport family with my father. Um, it's been really, really good to be able to go back over all that stuff and history and see the photos and and bring up a lot of the memories that uh, that have gone on throughout my career. For those who've been living under a rock and don't follow our world of VH Sleuth, <laughs> this week is an exciting week because it is the launch and the official arrival, dare we say, of CETO. It's the official racing history of Glenn Seaton. It's a hardcover book. It's 320 pages. It's not a paperback or a uh, with a couple of pictures. This is uh, beautiful paper, hardcover, packed with photos. We have gone right through it from uh, stuff of we even got an old school photo of yours that's your fault for handing that over <laughs> um, a bunch of young stuff from when you were starting out in carts and racing family shots uh, we've really covered the full gamut uh, is there anything that you hid from us was there any embarrassing photos that you didn't accidentally put in the post to us to scan and put in the book no not at all I've I think the whole story I've been very up upfront and honest with um, throughout my career with my people that I've raced against, my enemies, if you want to call it, um, the guys that uh, I raced with, um, co-drove with, or even co-drove with me, um, the whole scenario of the Nissan days, the whole scenario where I started in go-karts um, and um, being around in my early career with my father um, and, and only being a young toddler and following him around. So, um, I've, I've sort of gone through the whole thing of uh, where I started living in a, a little place called Moorbank in Liverpool and Sydney right through to where I've finished uh, basically my full-time career and then gone into just doing the enduro drives as a co-driver and then completely getting out of the sport and then naturally helping Aaron through uh, my son through, through his uh, transition from being a young child and go-karts through into racing cars as well. So... Uh, no, it's, I'd probably call it for me, what's and all. <laughs> and, um, and, but um, to see the book uh, finished like it is, it's just, it's been awesome because it's got so much good uh, stories in there and, and it's got so, so much good detail that, uh, that yourself have done a fantastic job of and um, I'm really proud of what uh, the finished product is. And we've got to also say that the guy that worked with you very closely on writing this is Stefan Bartholomeus, the digital editor of supercars.com. He was with Speed Cafe for a very long time. He lives not that far away from you. So it was a, a logical pairing to put you together to, to write this book. He's done an a, amazing job and um, plenty. I, I reckon your kitchen table's probably worn out from the, uh, the sessions that you've done uh, sitting there with the tape recorder running. Well, my lounge was. We spent, spent a lot of time on lounge. And I've got to say, we... We spent a lot of days together going over it and it was amazing to the detail at the end that uh, he put together for it. I was, I was really, really impressed. It was, I didn't know Steph that well until um, we did this book and to be able to sit down with him and to, to be able to be so honest and upfront and him to be able to write it the way I've expressed it. Um, I'm really impressed of the the effort that he put in and, and, and the time we spent together, um, I found him to be so approachable and so much as a, almost I'd call a, a good friend now from now on because, um, because naturally when you open up yourself to a lot of the truths that gone on in the past, some people don't really want to 
tell you a lot of that, but I'm, I feel I'm quite an open book in that area. I'm probably not when you see me at a racetrack because I'm very uh, focused on the job that I've got to do and, and the technical side of the sport that I've always enjoyed. But uh, away from it, um, I think I'm pretty open to saying how I saw it and how I felt the whole uh, of my career and, and the honesty that I could put to it. There's a range of revelations in the book, and I'm not going to give them all away because we want people to buy the book and enjoy it and be surprised with some of the things that they didn't know. Um, if you want to order a copy, jump on our website. It's bookshop.v8salute.com.au. It's a ripper, not just because we're saying it is. I genuinely believe that this is a really good level book that will set a new bar for anyone in motor racing who in Australia is going to put together an autobiography in the future. I think it's a nice blend of coffee table book but still a very strong narrative that uh, plenty of words and pictures is probably the easiest way to describe it. And it also has the history of all of your race cars from GSR and, and Ford Tickford Racing. But one of the revelations that uh, you mentioned in the book, and we'll go into a little bit now that people might not know, there was a discussion in 2002 when you'd gone back to running a single car Glen Seton racing team that you could have ended up at Clayton as part of what had been the TWR empire uh, you had a chat with john crennan and there was a very real chance you could have been in the kmart car that well went on to win bathurst the next two years that's correct um that was the approach uh, that was put to me uh back in 2002 um and actually mark was around scaife was around at um holden race team in those days and naturally they're running the the kmart team as well so yeah that opportunity certainly came up and um I suppose uh, for myself, um, I still hadn't finished what I wanted to finish off of my own race team. And also I was a very diehard Ford, Ford man um, from, uh, in those days as well. And, and if I look back on it now, was, I still think I made the, the right decision because I've ended up at the end of the day, at the end of that year, uh, to, to sell on to, um, to what you call Tickford now, which was Ford Performance Racing back in them days and then to be a part of that and then so much more has moved on. Um, yeah, could have been um, driving for Holden a, a lot more than I did um, and I naturally only at the end of my career that I did those couple of uh, enduro races with the Holden race team um, that actually put me into a Holden. So, yeah, it's, as I say, as we as people will get a really good read out of it, I think, because um, it's very honest and upfront, the whole book, and it also gives people probably a lot of detail of what they really didn't know about my career through starting at carts right through and through the Nissan days, what happened at the end of the Nissan days, in and out forming up my own race team, the people that were involved that um, helped me throughout motorsport. Um, they're all mentioned in there. And, uh, and the journey that I went on throughout my own race team, engineering my own race cars, running my own race team, um, the transition of, getting out of cigarette advertising and then going into basically Ford Credit Racing then. Um, the, the, the disappointment of that 95 Bathurst um, and the whole details of behind the scenes of what happened that year. Um, there's a lot of detail in there and I think personally, um, not just because uh, it's part of my book, um, I, just, I got interest in it of telling what really happened from year to year on, on how my career went through. One of the things that was um, really interesting reading, and I did read 
the book many times over because, of course, we were proofing it and editing it and making some tweaks here and adding that and taking that out and moving that around. One of the things that shone through, and you mentioned a few times, was the decision to set up your own race team, which for so many is because uh, they want to take control of their destiny. But you added a little element to that in this book that I hadn't really stopped and thought about, but it was part of it for you was securing your driving future. So let me put it this way. If you didn't create your own team with your dad back in 1989, would your long-term full-time career not been as long because you were always at the behest of someone else who, sorry, mate, we're out of a deal here. No, we're not going to honour that contract or no sponsors out or you don't have any skin in the game. So you're the first thing flicked. That really stood out to me as a, as a heavy reason that you probably don't stop and think of as an outsider as to why you, you went and done, you went and did your, your own team. So had you not done that, do you think your career might have been a bit shorter? Oh, there's no doubt. Um, when you look at the history of motorsport, um, when you can have control of your own destiny and, and usually run your race team, and if you're smart enough to do the engineering side of it, and like um, early days when we first set up race team, it wasn't things called engineers in race teams that just focused on setting up people's race cars and things like that. So I had to learn all that myself. And I learned a lot of that through my dad's own racing because he was very hands-on, but then also right through to being with Fred and, and, and the feel that I got out of kart racing and all that sort of stuff. So you start to learn a lot of technical stuff. Um, yeah, I would never have had the opportunity if I was just a, a driver for someone to actually have done all that other stuff too, to engineer car design stuff, run a race team, um, be responsible for employing people and having them coming along and be a part of the race team for success and be a part of that success is quite different when you've got all those responsibilities compared to just being a driver and you're then at the mercy of a team owner or, a, okay, if you come along and don't work in cognitive with a engineer and he doesn't want to work with you and you don't want to work with him because there is personality conflicts, you want to call it, you can pretty well be out of a race team pretty quick at the end of the year by the owner because he wants to keep the engineer, but the, the driver's all of a sudden no good. So being able to do the way I did it, exactly right what you said, is probably gave me a lot more longevity in the sport. Um, and it gave me a lot more appreciation of... Um, being a part of the motorsport and being coming through the three era, eras of motorsport too. I came through the Group C era, which was up to 84. Um, that's where I basically started my career in 83. Um, so I did Group C. Then we went through that era of Group A, which was the 85 right through until 92. Uh, I've got to be involved in that, which was a European formula. Then to have the opportunity to be a part of what success we've got now, which is supercars in 93. Um, there's not many that actually have been had that opportunity to be able to do that and also own a race team, engineer race car, and be a part of all that and have success in it too. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly if I didn't, if we didn't formulate Glen Seaton Racing back in 89, I'm sure my career would have been much shorter than it was. I was going to say too that one of the interesting elements in the way that your career plays out along the journey is um, the sliding doors moments. What could have been had you done this or not done that? Hand on heart. And I think when people write books, they not only are being honest with the, the people that are going to read it, they're being honest with themselves. 
So hand on heart, if we rewound and you had your timer game, what would you do differently with running that team? Would you have maybe seeded some more of the managerial stuff earlier on? Uh, what were your weaknesses? Hand on heart that you go, yep, that wasn't my bag. I should have got someone else to do that or I took a bit too long to do this. Or you've, got, you've had time to reflect on it all, particularly doing a book. What's your take on looking back on it all? Um, I'd have to say there's definitely no doubt in areas that I was weak. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and if I'd call it the sitting down, um, needing to write stuff, get programs going, things like that, I probably was, wasn't skilled enough in those areas to... So I should have brought management in earlier. There's no doubt because it would have made me as a driver a better driver that I could focus on the total driving side of it. Um, the technical side of it later on in my career, I should have let go a bit more um, and brought more technical side of into the, into the engineering side of it, if you want to call it, I suppose. But when you're educated in a way, you've come through the sport at a time when none of that's available or none of that was even thought of back in them days, you tend to keep doing the same thing all the time of, of what you've done in the past because it's been successful at a certain point in your career. Later on when it got much more professional and a lot more money involved in the sport that you had to have to run a race team and be competitive and you had the likes of the Walkinshaw show, once they got their legs going got their act together, they were... Uh, one, they, they'd had huge amounts of money to spend because they had very good merchandise as well, which, which duplicated a lot of uh, funds for their sponsorship as well. So then you're starting to fall behind because they had those people that had those managerial skills come. And then the, the technical side of it, they, they employed people that um, had very good experiences in race engineering and things like that. So you started to trying to do it on a one-person point of view, which I tried to do it on, to having these multiple uh, tiers of management and structures um, was just probably I left it a bit late to, to allow that to happen a bit earlier in my race team. There's no doubt. There's plenty more of those details in the book and we won't go through them all because otherwise why would people buy the book right. if we talk about it all here? There's plenty of those sides of things, but there's, there's two regrets that you've put into this book uh, relating to two people. One's Neil Crompton yeah. and one's Owen Kelly. Take yeah. me through the two regrets of, of those two guys. Uh, so probably you go through Neil first because he, um, he was with us in the Ford Tickford days. Uh, Owen came after that. So um, Neil was a fantastic uh, co-partner in the, in the race team. Uh, naturally, I was in car five. He was in car six. Um, he put a hell of a lot of effort into what we were doing. Um, he was he was such a such a knowledgeable guy and such a pleasure to work with. He was he was a fantastic race driver, um, and I suppose I look at it at the end of two thousand. We we went our separate ways, and I wish that we could actually have kept that going because. We had some direction because of his input, uh, because of John Matthews come on board as well from um, from from uh, PPG at the time, or it was actually Julux he was working for, and uh, that which became PPG. He became on as team manager. He was a fantastic team manager, fantastic people's person, and did a great job for us. Um, 
And sort of there was a lot of pressures internally uh, from, from the Ford people to make change. Um, but I sort of, it was my race team. I should have just stuck to what we were doing. Um, there was a point through 2000 where uh, Neil and I, sort of the, the pressures from, for, from everywhere was weighing on both of us. Um, and we sort of um, struggled a bit there together. But we, we, it, was, it was one race weekend that, that sort of come about. And then we sort of were great after that. Um, and I sort of got to the end of that end of that year, and I wish that we could have gone on for another year at least, because um, I think he was a great asset for us, and he was he was a great guy and 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 a great race driver, and fantastic as a co-partner t- to go into a Bathurst or an endurance event with, because um, he he could really lift when um, uh, when the enduros come along, and and it was a really good combination. And on the Owen Kelly one, Owen was naturally. Uh, are going to drive with me at Bathurst in 2002. And uh, so we, we spent, because I phased back to a single car team and naturally I still had the, the two cars still still sitting. I actually probably had three then. Um, so we spent a lot of time throughout the year giving Owen as much miles as we could in the car and we'd just go testing at Winton or places like that. We'd take the spare car and, and, and Owen would go around and do it. And he did a heap of miles that year. And, and it was really sad. We got to Bathurst. And on the Thursday night, Owen got really sick um, with a virus. I, at the end of the day, we, we don't know why, but, um, and he could not stop vomiting all the way until Saturday. Um, and, and it got to a point where we just didn't know if Owen was actually going to be okay for Sunday. Um, so at the same time, naturally Ford supported uh, Stone Brothers Racing, and that was the year Gardner had the brake failure going up mountain straight in practice in uh, in David Besnard's car and rode it off. So they were out of the event. So Besnard was sitting there um, without a drive for that weekend. And, and when the Owen got sick happened and then it was a Saturday morning, we still, he was still sick on Saturday morning and um, Ford had some doctors there um, that went over and, and visit him and, and give him a drip and try and to help him on that day. And, it still was sort of after two days of being sick, was he going to be up to the, the task on the Sunday energy-wise and fitness-wise to be able to do the job? And we also didn't know if we woke up Sunday morning and he was still sick, what do we do? Um, the, the game's over for us. So uh, with, with, this, with the pressure from Ford and things like that um, and, and talking with um, the Stones and also with Ford, um, the... the deal was put together to to put Bezzy with me. Um, and I regret that decision now because Owen by Saturday afternoon was was actually come good. And there's so much BS out there about we form that to have that happen. That's totally false, total false. And I really regret not giving Owen the job because in the race, Bezzy uh, had a moment across the gravel trap at uh, the S's and ripped all the coolers off at the end of their race. Um, the gearbox ran out of oil and because the gear coolers were hanging off it. And uh, But just the effort that we put in for Owen, and, and I've got to say, I really rate Owen as a race driver, and I think he would have done a, a fantastic job for us that year and, and maybe forged on to a, a great career moving forward in, in supercars more, more than he did. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. 
Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. Let's talk about some of the success. The two Australian Touring Car Championships are covered in detail in the book. There's a beautiful double-page spread photo that is probably the rarest photo ever. It's the one photo of Glenn Seaton doing a burnout post-championship, <laughs> 1997. Is it true that you, that's the one event that you actually had a car where you, had, you were ready to do that burnout in case you won the championship, that you had it all set up good to go? Absolutely. We put a, um, a line locker tap in the, in the brakes so I could actually lock off the, the back brakes. Um, and uh, do the burnout because um, it was sort of, a, I suppose, a pretty pretty special year, that one, because we were such a small little team scale back from what we were back in the cigarette days. And we were a very small number of people to... And we our pace throughout the year and our results were pretty good. I, I made a stuff up at Lakeside uh, in one of the rounds where I was leading the race. We had a reasonable amount of points gap. Um, in the championship, and it was Bowie. Was I won the first race? The second race, Bowie was right behind me, who was the, the challenger in the championship. And I got up out of the hungry at Lakeside, going towards the top of the hill, and I actually missed my brake. My foot got caught under the brake pedal and missed the brake pedal, and ended up straight over in the fence. So that put a lot of pressure on for the rest of the year, uh, points wise. Um, so by the time we got to Oran Park. We always knew Oran Park was really a, a pretty good hunting ground for us, and I was really determined to go there and win and, and win that championship. and And to to put the brake valve in there was a just a confidence boost of yep, we're going there to win, and this is what I'm going to do at the end. Is because we're sponsored by Bridgestone, we had to make the the, the tire smoke, <laughs> make it all the highlight. And um, yeah, it is. It's it's quite a memorable moment, and um, I suppose. Uh, the year before, Lounsey did it with HRT, I think it was, the year before. Well, well, he did, but he stole Brock's car because his own car had broken in the last yeah. race, so he pinched 05 and lit it up. Yeah. So that sort of started that sort of let's do the burnout thing at the end of championships. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll certainly set up for it that year. It, it, it just doesn't mesh your personality <laughs> with burnout, King. I'm not sure it goes together, mate, but it was a good burnout. You've got to be proud of it. Oh, I was super proud of the burnout because uh, couldn't, you couldn't actually see the car in the middle of the, the uh, smoke that was coming out of it. That's how much uh, smoke was putting off. But uh, I suppose I'm a, uh, I have a lot of sympathy mechan- mechanically for cars and I just see burnouts and sitting on rev limiters and, and uh, tearing up tyres and like, things like that isn't very sympathetic to race cars. You can always tell an owner-driver from yeah. just the driver. It's very, and, very simple. Yes, and had to pay the bills. So exactly. Uh, but that year, it didn't matter. Yeah, when you win the championship, you can let your hair down just, just a little uh-huh. bit, just a little bit. Uh, one of the things that we unearthed for this book, which I'd never really seen too many of these before, photos of you racing the Bluebird. You were the last guy <laughs> to race the Group C Bluebird. Um, I'll spit that out. The Group C Bluebird. It's hard to say fast. But everyone connects George Fury to that car, Freddie Gibson, Gary Scott. Uh, but you were the last one to drive it at Baskerville in Tassie in 84. That's correct. Um, naturally, I drove for Nissan that year in 84 at Bathurst with Christine Gibson in the, the Nissan Exa, which they called the Electric Rat. Um, <laughs> and, and then an opportunity, because 
Bathurst is always the last round for most of that um, Group C days. So there was actually an event come up at uh, Baskerville in Tasmania where they took six cars down there and they called it the last of the big bangers. So it was the the last run of um, was basically Group C. And the opportunity came up where, uh, and it was probably through Fred because naturally most of our dealings with the Nissan days was mostly through Fred. Uh, we got the opportunity through Fred and, and how it actually approached about coming down and driving the Bluebird and, and, and having a run at Baskerville through. I suppose they saw Bathurst, the, the potential there for me, and if we're going to get Glenn a part of the, the future of Nissan, um, we'll give him a run in the Bluebird. And, and yeah, that was... It was amazing, Aaron, because I, and I, and I, and it's in the book too. Um, should I give it away? The bit about the yeah, gearbox? why not? Well, oh, 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 well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, the first time I ever drove the car, I've never driven a dog drive style gearbox, which just comes in trucks and things like. You've got to double shuffle the, shuffle the clutch to go down through the gears. And I drove out of pit lane at Baskerville, and. Um, came straight back in. I couldn't change gears. I've never driven a dog box in my life. And Everyone how thought you were an absolute goose. Yeah, how embarrassing. Here's all the guys from the Nissan crew. Here's this kid for his opportunity to, to drive the car that just had been on pole at Bathurst in 84, uh, which uh, George had done a few months before, to kids driven out in this ultimate race car of uh, Group C and drives back in and goes... How do you change gears in this car? <laughs> it was an embarrassing moment. So they sort of give me a run out. You got to double shuffle going down, okay? Just went out and really adapted to it really quick. Um, that sort of didn't. But that was the only thing that weekend that was embarrassing to a degree. But also the end result to it was a bit disappointing because it got taken out in the uh, in the race, which sent the car across the paddock and uh, a rock sitting in the in the paddock actually tore tore the, tore the um, fuel tank out of it. And, that end of our weekend. So, but uh, the opportunity I got and also to put the car on pole in my first opportunity was, um, I suppose, set my opportunities to be a part of the factory team pretty well up there on the list. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably didn't know or forgot that you were the, the last Bluebird pilot. They remember the, the Skylines that you drove, the DR30s and the, the HR31s for a period there before you departed the Nissan team. So there's some great shots, including some colour photos that we'd never seen before that we managed to secure to, to stick in the book. Something we did secure is yep. a bloke who at the moment, and this is a fluke, he's got a book out at the same time. Is it just how it meant to be in life that Scaife and Seaton do books in the same month? It's, it's amazing, isn't it? He's written the forward for your book. Uh, who would have thought these two kids who were banging around in carts and backyard cars and stuff in the back blocks of Oran Park have ended up with the careers you've had and yeah. then they wheel out a book each without knowing each other's doing one uh, in the same week. Crazy. It is amazing because um, I remember when we were going through the details of doing my one, um, it was a, and I got a email from the people that were doing uh, a part of uh, Mark's book at the time and they asked me to if I'd put a a bit of words to detail of our relationship with Mark and I so it was just so Kenny that here we are doing mine and he's he's doing that one and I'm being asked to do a little bit in his and he's 
he's naturally become the, the forward of my book. And um, because I, at the end of the day, we, we spent a hell of a lot of time together from basically our under 10 year old we were when we first met. So, um, and we'd spent, because of our fathers, um, were good mates and also raced together and, and Russell bought one of my dad's Capris. Uh, we'd spent a lot of time as families together over all those years. So um, our, our motor racing in one way is quite parallels in where we started and where we've sort of gone through our careers. We've just been on, one's been on the red side of the fence and one's been on the blue side of the fence, <laughs> but came from the same areas of karting, our father's race cars. Um, we went through the Nissans together um, to once naturally I moved on to Glen Seton Racing and he stayed, uh, Mark stayed on with Fred and created a career from there and then ended up in the Holden camp and I ended up in the Ford camp and being rivals against each other but never ever had that bitter rivalry between each other because we always had huge respect for each other because of our whole bringing ups together, I think. So, no, that's it's, it's pretty cool when I think of it that we're, we've so many years of knowing each other from him being seven and me being nine to being the same year of bringing out a book <laughs> on going through the same career paths together. Um, it's just amazing. It's, it's just everything's lined up. One of the things he said when we worked with him on the forward was he said that we were so opposite. I mean, when you think about it, he was Holden, you were Ford. He was, when you were in mobile cigarette packets, as he said, he was Winfield, you were Peter Jackson. Yeah. He was a red car, actually a red car Holden. Yeah. You were a blue Ford. Yeah. Uh, he was Yokohama, you were Bridgestone. Sure. Um, there's very different personalities between you both. The, the differences are obvious. <laughs> just a so, tag. Just a just tag. A smidgen, just a Who's smidgen. The better so, personality? Which one's the better personality? No comment, Your Honour. <laughs> no comment. Uh, <laughs> Everyone can read the two books and make their own decision. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's hilarious that you were so opposite in every element, but had the commonality of competition, yeah. passion for the sport, driven to succeed. Uh, but it's so funny that so many of those elements that put yeah. together what you were, you were on the opposite sides of the fence and, and yeah. it didn't, I know things were a little frosty when you left Gibson's and yeah. took a bit of time to adjust. And I know yeah. Mark wasn't too thrilled when you left and, and the way that you left, but um, the way that time brings everyone back together. And, uh, but, but the reality was that for the period of probably the, the main of the nineties there, when uh, you were in your team, he was at Gibson and later at HRT, the opposites were just out of control, but it never really changed you guys from, from what it seemed on the outside either. I think, and like I said, and when I've spoke in the book about Mark and things like that, um, we probably complimented each other. I'm the very introverted. He's the very extroverted. So when Mark could, I suppose, be boisterous, I could calm him into being a bit quieter. <laughs> did, did you, did you or did you not? He also probably drove me to being what I am too, as, as in a driver. Um, the determination, to see the determination of how he went motor racing. He was, he's such a determined guy. Never ever say to Mark Scape, you can't do something because he'll absolutely go out of his way to prove you wrong and he'll keep trying until he dies to prove you wrong. So that has probably been good for me too, the, to, to see that side of someone else and to, but 
as much as we've had situations where I suppose it could have been very inflaming uh, between the two of us, it actually wasn't. We, we had enough respect for each other that the respect stopped any of the fights or arguments or, or the disrespect to each other that it could have been. Mm. Did you or did you not save him and stop him from a few fights as younger blokes? Absolutely. Many. many. I dragged him away from many. The only one I couldn't drag him away from is the fights between him and his dad. He <laughs> <laughs> sometimes go to his place and the, 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 they'd start off pretending to have a bit of a wrestle with each other, but it would get a bit serious, but I was never getting in between Russell and Mark because I knew I was going to have a lot of black eyes if I did. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a lover, not a fighter, Sudo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, one of the most common things you get talked about um, and discussed with from fans is Bathurst 95, the story is so well known. You're leading the race with nine to go. The engine lets go, and you're uh, you're out of the race to to try to win the one that had been built up more than any other year because of the bonus that was on offer with the 30th anniversary of your dad's win. It was pick the cash or the car. There is a question from one of our fans about that a little bit later on. But 25 years on, had you won that race, do you think people would have been talking about it as much as what happened on the day? If Glenn Seaton had won his First, and maybe he's only Bathurst, would people remember it as much as what happened to you that day? And not just what happened, but how you reacted. And, and in recent weeks, we've had AFL and NRL grand finals. And I'm going to be AFL follower and supporter. You never see, it's just not done. The losing team, uh, you know, it's, it's akin to nine minutes to go in the grand final. You're getting you're leading, you've just lost the lead with a couple of goals and you're going to lose. It's just a case of the clock running down and a commentator on the boundary line sticking a microphone under your nose while you're sitting on the bench, distraught, gutted, stuffed. It doesn't happen. It will never happen. But in our sport, it does and it did that day. I think part of the whole reason why everyone remembers that so much is not just the the theatre and the drama of you nearly winning, but how you reacted with it. If you'd not had that element of the in-car discussion on the television, I don't think it would form as strong. It would still be quite strong, but not to the level that it is in the the hearts and minds of the fans. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think Def, and and I've said that as well in in the book as well, that that race in one way was heart-wrenching because of the history and the family and dad won it and, and, and the distraughtness of dad was on that day as well because naturally we had a lot going on behind the scenes with the sponsorship ending and the, the dad and I's relationship in that time of, of, our, of, our, of my career and his career. Um, but, it, yeah, there's no doubt I'm, I'm remembered much. I would have been remembered. I am remembered much more of what happened on that day than if I would have won it. There's no doubt about that. Um, and is that a good thing? Probably has been really for for me moving forward as in the sport. But I, I suppose on that day people say, uh, "How can you handle something like that the way you did?" Well, I look at it based on look. You put everything into it that year. There was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Not only with um, thirty years since my father won Bathurst, I was car thirty. I was uh, I was age thirty. 
there's a lot going on with Philip Morrison in the background because that was their last year of sponsorship. There was a lot going on with Alan Jones uh, because he was my teammate and and what was going on internally in Philip Morris, which he ended up setting up pack leader the following year. Um, there was stuff going on with myself and my dad. Um, so I suppose I've always looked at motorsport that, uh, and, and what I've been able to achieve and be a part of is I've been unbelievably lucky to be a part of something that's been uh, my passion. It's been my hobby. It's been my profession. I've got to actually own a race team and run a race team. I got to win championships. Um, I got to engineer my own race cars. I got the whole package, Aaron, and there's not many people that actually have that opportunity to do that. Um, and I look at how lucky I, I've been and also even on that day to even get to the point of being nine laps from the end, leading that big race, I knew, take the mechanical side of it out, of, I knew I did the best that I could on that day. We were going to win that race if we didn't break a valve spring because we were pulling away from Larry. Um, and it was just one of those things that I just look back on it and go, that happened for a reason. And I was very lucky to be a part of all that scenario that actually unfolded, to be honest. And, and that's you know, the way I've got to look at it. And people say to you, are you really disappointed? Yep, so, certainly are disappointed I never got the opportunity to win Bathurst. But it's always been probably something that people have always remembered me for who would have completely forgot about me otherwise. I'm sure you wouldn't have been completely forgotten about just quietly. <laughs> After all, you are the burnout king of V8 Supercar history uh, because you're one, you're, you're perfect score, one from one, 100%. I'm yeah. sure Van Gisbergen's done a few burnouts that weren't that flash. McLaughlin's done some that weren't that brilliant. Will Davidson hit the wall in Townsville trying to do a yeah. burnout. You didn't do that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you've got them all covered, mate. You've got them all covered. The other thing I'll just add to that is, and, and, I, and I talk about how I dealt with that finish in that camera stuff and all that, is there was so much pressure gone on up to that point. Even the pressure you're under for that last nine laps of trying to get the maximum out of that race car to make sure Larry can't catch you. When it comes to an end and, it, and, and you have the foul you have, it's unbelievable. Yes, it's unbelievably disappointed, but also all that pressure in the way I deal with it released too, because I've done everything I could do um, and it didn't happen all that pressure of all the build-up of what's happening sort of releases. It's amazing to – people will say, how can that be? You can, you can deal with pressure in two ways. You can deal with pressure once it's released, you're, you, you can let go or you can deal with it with anger and go, oh, it's not fair, blah, 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 and get off your bike about it. I sort of deal with pressure the opposite way where, okay, it's happened to release that pressure of all the build-up of what's gone on and up to that point. Now I just need to move on and, and, and deal with um, how, how, we, how we fix that problem from the next step on. So that's the way I dealt with it on the day. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now you might know their name and you might recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in the centrepiece of one of the most stunning stadiums in the world of sport? The two billion, yes billion dollar Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta features a retractable roof that is a work of incredible engineering. 
It features eight triangular roof panels, or pedals as the designers call them, that slide open and close in the same way that a camera shutter does. Each pedal weighs almost 500 metric tonnes and when the roof is closed, each pedal cantilevers over 60 metres from the outer edge of the stadium. Now despite the weight, the size and the complexity of the design, the roof can be closed in just over seven minutes and open in just over eight, with Timken's tapered roller bearings used to ensure each pedal moves smoothly. The stadium's home to the Atlanta Falcons NFL team and the Atlanta United Major League Soccer team, and in 2019, it hosted the crown jewel of American football, the Super Bowl. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timkin in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast through the course of the year. Now, it's back to the podcast. The great thing is with this this book that's out this week, it is released through our uh, V8 Sleuth online bookstore. The website address is bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. There are a bunch of stockists around the country who are also stocking this book. So if you're looking for it in a particular area, send us a note through the website or through social media or through the podcast. Um, but I, I just thought too that one of the things, and this is actually something you mentioned later in the book, um, we fast forward through the Ford Credit era, the Ford Tickford era, FPR, endurance drives, TCM, what you're doing now. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned at the end of this book, and I really wanted to ask you about this, it, it was a really nice way that you've, you've put a full stop on this. And part of it was that you'd be pretty inclined to go and become a bit of a caravaner, go on a bit of a wander around the country. Um, I'm not calling it a CETO tour, but um, that you'd be quite happy to just park up, wander down the local pub, take in a bit of live music and uh, have a meal or two and just wander around and see a bit of this great country of ours. So that leads me to two important questions, Glenn Seaton. What music are you into? And what's your drink of choice? Uh, well, it's a, the drink of choice is a hard one. I'll tell you why. Because all my motor racing career, I didn't drink except for if we had a success at a championship or a race, I'd have a beer or two. Um, I'd still say today, if, if anything I'm going to drink, is probably a beer. Uh, the old 150 lashes at the moment, I don't actually mind sometimes occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty good but music wise I love the cold plays I love all the old stuff of uh, also the cold chisel stuff because that's that was all my childhood stuff was cold chisel Aussie crawl um, I love Fleetwood Mac all that sort of music that that early day stuff what, what I call early day stuff so yeah I'm not so much more into the late model stuff except for the cold plays and, and, and Ed Sheeran I love the Ed Sheeran stuff that style of music is what, what I love and I love to get to if we if get to some of these venues, just sit down, have a beer and, and just um, listen to some music. It's pretty cool these days. Have you got a caravan or are you in the market to buy one? I'm sure in some of our listeners have yeah. caravan dealerships in the life. I am. I'm in the market to buy one. Well, mm, I smell a deal to be done here. <laughs> <laughs> you know anyone? You Jackie, JK or one of my sponsors. Um, they were back yeah. in the FTR days. FTR days, yep. So, JK, looking for a bit. The only of... way to go. That was the tagline, wasn't it? That's it. That's yeah, it. yeah. Isn't it funny built, how they built our merchandise van, actually. Um, JK, ah. Had, uh, Advertising jingles stay in your mind, don't they? They work. Absolutely. Hey, um, 
Glenn, I'm going to hit you with something that we yep. hit all of our guests with. It doesn't hurt too much, I promise. Uh, <laughs> the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer Questions, the National Motor Racing Museum uh, at Mount Panorama. Sadly, this year was closed during race week for the Bathurst 1000, but it is back open now. Um, check out the museum's uh, Bathurst website for their opening details, but they're open pretty much every day except Tuesdays. So um, if you're in the area, pop in and, and see that they're constantly changing what cars are on display. I know over time, the 65 winning Cortina of your dad has spent a lot of time up there uh, yeah. on display. And um, some of your various cars over the years have been in and out of that place. Uh, we probably need to put together a Cedo exhibition, don't you reckon? A yellow Capri and a Ford Credit Falcon and a bit of that stuff would be good. I'm trying to get the, well, my dad has still got the um, yellow Capri. So he's, he's said he's given it to me when he passed away, but he's actually talking about giving it to me a bit earlier. So I'm, my plan is, or this is the plan at the moment, is we're going to try and get that between now and Christmas back up in Queensland because he's got it uh, down at Foster where he comes from now. And um, I want to do a bit of resto on it, but not actually do any, uh, any of the resto that takes away the, the originality of it, just to get it going mechanically. And I want to get it out there and do some of these Group C races and get Aaron in it too. So then we've got the three generations through it. So, um, yeah, that, that car would look good up there at Bathurst sitting in that museum. Yeah. Um, there's a lot yeah. of history in that because of father and son and, and it's the first car I ever drove at Bathurst, um, which is a real highlight. We might see if the Pulsar X is available to be parked up there yeah. as well. Yeah. Every exhibition needs an electric rat. Um, <laughs> The, the first question of our Couch Racer questions, Glenn, comes from Justin Olden. Uh, he asks, was John Bow your most intense rival? He says that he never heard you say anything negative about another driver until Bathurst 95 when you and JB came together just out of the cutting. Now, I'm sure you did say something negative about a driver before 1995 <laughs> in your life. It's just that no one heard it. I didn't say anything negative about John because all I said on the TV coverage was, this is the words I said, I, I expect that from Dick and John when they... They'd got on interviewed before they came to me in the in-car and said, naturally, give me a serve for serving up John, I suppose you'd call it. Um, but I just said, well, look, Mark, I'd, I'd expect that from John and Dick and left it at that. So, um, no, publicly, I don't think I, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't know, I just don't think there's a need for that publicly to come out and bag people, to be honest. Beyond the scenes, it's probably a bit different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> say it to their face. If you're going to say it to them, yeah. that's right. So was Bowie your most intense rival, do you think? Oh, definitely yeah, Bowie and Scafie and Bowie, yeah. Where, where they were very good and clever was mechanically, technically, they knew what they needed from their car and they could, um, they could deliver that to their people that were, were working on the car of what changes they needed and what they needed to go faster. So they were probably the two, well, they were the only two that I ever was when, when, when I was around that actually I see had that skill and they were the ones that gave me the most challenges for sure. Stephen Brennan's got the next question. Would you race with Aaron in a TCR or six hour at Bathurst or something that's a little bit enduro spec that requires a co-driver or are your days doing that stuff done? It's a really hard one to answer because I'd like to, it, it, it'd be where I'd need to do some laps to see if I feel comfortable that I'll be up to speed. If I hopped into something like that, I would want to know that I could at least do half a job to make it 
not be the, the drag on Aaron, to be honest. So, yeah, I, I would never say no, but I would certainly want to do a, a test day in a car to make sure that I'm going to be up to scratch. But Bathurst is different because I, I, I don't seem to have – I seem to have a really good feel at Bathurst to be able to drive anything and, and sort of fall into the comfort zone pretty quickly there. Um, so it probably Bathurst would – the only thing is – I haven't driven front-wheel drives for many years if it was a TCR. But if they put a uh, Trans Am race on there, Enduro race, Yay, hey, be, I'd think about that. <laughs> I, reckon that'd I, be aw- I reckon that'd be awesome to have the um, Trans Am cars in the same race as the TCR cars at the festival at the end of next year, um, doing the endurance as well. I reckon that'd be fantastic for the class. It's a cost-effective class for everybody to be able to go racing. And I have spoke to category manager about that and see if that is an opportunity. But that would be, I think, would be great for the class and great for that event as well to have those cars in there because they sound good, they look fat, they go well, and it'd be good for both. Okay, sounds good. Julian Cooper's question, how much... <laughs> How much plastic did you consume driving your race car? Always <laughs> chewing on the chewing. Well, it hasn't caught up to me yet in my older days, but I'm sure at some stage I've probably got plastic poisoning because I have no idea what quality of that tube that I was chewing on, to be honest. It, probably, it would have just come from something like a Bunnings or a Mitre 10 or something like that because Mitre 10 were around then. Well, just, I hope like I wasn't involved in that. Yeah, it's probably totally toxic, but it's... I never noticed I was doing it. That's the stupid thing about it until I got to the end of the, end of the day or got to go to the next race meeting. I had to cut the end off the, the tube every every race meeting I went to because I chewed it up that much that, um, that it needed chopping off. So, But, yeah, it's, I suppose it was one of those things that uh, I got bored while I was driving, so I was chewing on the straw. <laughs> <laughs> in the in the enduro days, did you have two straws, or did Crompton or Richard no, no. or any of those blokes? Yeah, they had to put up with your straw. No, they had to, we had two straws because they always specified to have their own. After seeing me chewing on plastic, the end of the plastic, and half the time I'd probably chew it. I chewed it that much that it closed it off, and they couldn't get any fluid anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably in their contract for signing yeah. up the job with your team. Yeah. Section six, paragraph five. <laughs> Will not yeah. use Cito's drink straw. Fair call. Yeah. Uh, Reedy's question, uh, Glenn, where do you see the future direction of supercars? Is the less aero Gen 3 the answer or do you think it needs to go further? Uh, I think it needs to get further. It needs to go further on cost. Um, I see the new Gen 3, only what I read, where they're going to save all this money from existing cars and change as little as they are. I don't know how you're going to do it, but... Yes, I definitely think uh, less aero is definitely the way to go because um, it'll make – what you need to make basically, you need to make uh, in aerodynamic area, you need to make that the car behind is never at a disadvantage. And any time you have a front under train in front of a car, um, particularly what they've got which produce a reasonable amount of downforce, as much, then it's not a lot in numbers but it's a lot in a sedan car situation. So as soon as you – when you've got aero – and you get up behind someone and there's no air passing under your undertraining or you don't have the suction to pull the nose down, which gives you front grip through high-speed corners. So the bloke behind has lost that good air. So what happens is basically they have lift and the bloke in front still has downforce, so he's always going to carry corner speed faster. So you're never going to get an exit speed unless you've got a mechanical advantage over the guy in front to be able to 
come off the corner, in a high-speed corner, I mean, and be able to get alongside him to pass him at the next corner. So, yes, definitely aero stuff, and I think the front they need to reduce, and I think they need to look more into actually realistically making these cars cheaper to build. Uh, um, like I see some of the rules that they're allowing, they're having a, a certain part of a controlled chassis, which they have now, but teams can still put them together. Why? Like at the end of the day, why shouldn't it just coming from one source, that chassis, it'll save having all the labour to put it together. It'll save a team to team having a different chassis in the way they welded or the way they put the roll cage in one inch further forward or one inch further back, all that sort of stuff. And it'll just make it cheaper because if, if one source could actually produce all the chassis, they're going to be cheaper because they, they produce more together will make a cheaper product. So I only hope that the, and the engine side of it is, the engine side of it, even back when we were running them was too expensive, to be honest, back in the, the 90s. Like they were a $120,000 engine back in the early 90s or the, the 90s when we were starting. By the time you buy the parts, you do the, do the ports, the CNC, you've got to buy all the good bits, all this, the crank, good cranks, rods, pistons, all that sort of stuff. You don't get much change out of 100 grand, and then you do your injection, you, like the fuel injection on top of them are all handmade by each individual team, most of them. So then you've got all that side of it. So you need to make that side of it. And to only get 4,000 Ks before you've got to rebuild them, it's crazy for a $120,000 engine, $150,000 now. Um, so there's all those areas that need, someone needs to be able to go, and it probably needs to be taken out, to be honest, it needs to be taken out of the hands of the teams. Because there's a vested interest there, and they don't want to get rid of half the stuff they got. Mm. Uh, do you? Like, do you? Saying, like the... I'm not saying get rid of the, all the stuff they got. What I'm saying is, bring someone in that goes, well, do you, you don't really need that. You don't really need that. You don't really need that, um, and and make it more cost effective. And the other thing is, is um, to, the existing cars to maintain them, the amount of people you need because there's so maintenance orientated cars to work on now. You've got to employ a lot of people to, to go motor racing. That's that's the big cost. Mm. Like you look at most of these now, they've got forty five to fifty people like to run two race cars. It's crazy. In a, in, a, in Australia, you've got 25 million population. It's not like we're in America where you've got three hundred plus population, and you, and, and your your avenue to draw money is a much bigger pool. You've only got a little market here. Mm. Do you like the general concept, though, that, of course, sadly, Holden is gone, but that they're going to put a, a Camaro in there? It brings us back to the Jane and Moffat days of the early 70s with Camaro and Mustang. Do you think that's the, the right way to go in terms of what we can have on the, the platform racing against one another? It makes sense to have a GM car I'd, out there. Definitely. I, I, I think that's a good thing to have Mustang and, and Camaro there, but also in... You can't just, I don't think today, have a series of just a Camaro and a Mustang now. Um, still need to have the avenue where other manufacturers can literally come in and be a part of it. But at the end of the day, they also need to be able to come in and be a part of it and be competitive too, where we haven't really seen that. Okay, if you use Nissan, for example, where they came in to try and be a part of it, the cars were never really competitive. They're always up against it. You're always going to have this situation where Others' influences in the sport will stop others reaching the top. <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, it's been going on for years. It ain't going to yeah. change anytime soon. Yeah. No one's going to give anyone a free kick. It's called politics, um, Aaron. It's called politics. 
You loved politics, didn't you? You were just oh, a, you were a politician. You were a beast. Shit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, another question here from Jared Minogue. He says, is there any truth to a story that he's heard about your engine for Bathurst in that 95 year being the number 13, which is so unlucky for so many people, but it being swapped from your car and ended up in Alan Jones's car because you were superstitious about number 13. Is that right? Or is there a little bit, is that around the other way? What's the, the truth of the story there? 13 was definitely the engine that meant to go in my car. And yes, I was, I didn't, I don't like 13. <laughs> and it ended up in Alan's car. Yes, that's correct. And that's the engine that finished second in the race in his car. Correct. Oh, <laughs> superstition gets so Seaton. So there is a reasonable amount of truth in that. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. Uh, Brett Ebb. No, this no, Jared... Who was it? What was the guy's name? Jared Minogue. So he would have got his information from Scott Owen. Ah, right. Okay. <laughs> the engine man, Scotty Owen. Ah, the infamous Scotty Owen, who... Yep. Uh, Features in plenty of stories, not in the book, in the Glen Seaton Racing era, that's for sure. <laughs> I couldn't put probably... any of these stories in it because <laughs> it'll end up being a rated R book. <laughs> <laughs> there is a good, uh, there is a funny story or two about Scotty, who was a great part of your team and um, was was there during the, the Peter Jackson and, and Ford Credit era, Ford Credit era, um, and he's still heavily involved in sport. And actually, uh, we should point this out too. He owns. He's got your Bathurst car from 95. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. He purchased that probably three years ago now from a guy in WA. And um, he, he does have the intentions at some stage of restoring it. But knowing Scotty, probably a long way away. <laughs> Don't wait for it to be restored <laughs> by Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love the boy. <laughs> love him. He's uh, great. Our race team. He's a good man. Good Still, value. And, and the, the ironic thing is now he works with uh, on Johnny Bow's um, TCM car on TCM race weekends. So here we are um, dealing with our biggest opposition back in when he was with me uh, doing the engines for um, Peter Jackson and also uh, Ford, um, Ford Credit Days. Now working for my, the bloke who was my biggest enemy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That's oh, good. Talk, talk about it. it's a small world and a round circle. Everything mm -hmm. uh, comes around somewhere. Uh, Brett Ebbs next with our next question. This is actually our Castrol question of the week because I think you would have been asked this at the time and you've been asked it since. If you'd won Bathurst 95, yep. what would you have taken on the day, the Cortina or the 30 grand cash, and what would you take now? Yep, two different answers. Uh, the reason it would have, I would have taken the 30 grand on the day because, one, I didn't think an old Cortina would be worth 30 grand, to be honest. <laughs> Even though it was beautifully restored and it is the original car, I would never have expected an old Cortina to be worth 30 grand. But two is I needed the 30 grand to keep surviving because um, naturally that was the end of the cigarette era. And I didn't know what was happening the following year. So every bit of 30 grand we could have gave us a better opportunity to be on the grid the following year. So, no, but today I would have definitely, if you, if you can always have a crystal ball, you'd have the Cortana today because it'd be worth 30 grand every day of the week because it's got well, what's some it, in it. But, what's but it also, worth now? GT5, well, 
the thing is, it's a GT500, so they were a special. They only made so many of them. There's probably 500 of them, I suppose. That's why they're called GT500, unless it was the because of the Armstrong 500. But um, the difference was they had uh, the fuel tank was different to give it a bit longer range and things like that. So, um, so there's very few of them around. It is the original proper car that actually won the race. Still got the number plate on it. <laughs> Um, than that on the day. Um, so what would it be worth? Well, it's like everything, Aaron. It's only worth whatever someone else wants to pay for it and sees the value in it. Yeah. So yeah. it could be worth 100 grand or it could be worth 50 grand. If, if it went to an auction, you don't know until someone puts their hand up and goes, hey, look, I see, I see a future in that. I want that and I'll pay whatever I need to pay for it. Well, well, had you ha- had you got it 25 years ago, you would have had to pay for storage fees. You would have had That's to keep right. it running. So you probably would have spent the difference on keeping it ticking. That's exactly right. But it, it still would have been great to have it for the family because, like I say, it was my dad's car to win the 65 Bathurst. But then to have the yellow car, which is the first car I ever drove in his last car, uh, and also the car that Scapey got his licence in as well, um, back in the 80s when he got his licence at Oran Park, the same car I got my licence in, and to be able to have the two championship cars of mine, that's all I would have loved to have had um, mm. if I could have cars now today. But uh, you look back on now and you go, for what, they were, what they're bringing now, um, I couldn't justify going out and wanting to buy any of those cars back. <laughs> and they weren't worth then what they are now. And the same case with every team owner, you had to sell one to get the next thing. Absolutely. Look at the Sierras, for instance. I sold those two Sierras that I had. I had three of them all up. I sold one as a two-litre car, but two of my turbo cars uh, for forty grand in ninety-two. Ooh. And Rusty <laughs> French, my understanding is Rusty French wants a half a million for one of them today. Hey, think of that. Ouch. Yeah, no, don't think of that. That that stings too much. It does. You, you, could, you, you couldn't give away Group A turbo cars when the V8 formula came in. I remember vividly, Chris Lambden had one of those HR31 Skylines, a yeah. repairs car that was an ex-factory car. He tried to run it. Uh, he couldn't sell it as a Group A car because he couldn't race it anywhere. I think he raced it in sports sedans once. Took the turbo off it and tried to flog it as a two-litre touring car, which you managed to do with one of yours. Still couldn't flog it. And I think he ended up selling it for like 30-odd grand and he winced some years later when it was going on the historic market for 200 and something. So, uh, yeah, if only if only we'd known. But, yeah, great question from Brett Ebb. That's our question of the week thanks to Castrol because Castrol is more than oil. It's liquid engineering. They provide the oils, the fluids and the lubricants for today and the future for every driver every rider and every industry. And you can follow Castrol on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport, exclusive comps, and much, much more. Uh, Michael Lever, this is a good question, but I reckon I know the answer. Who's the one driver you wish you had the chance to share a car with? Oh, Scaifey. No doubt because of uh, our past of um, bringing up from a seven and nine-year-olds through our dad's racing career and, and sort of going on the same... Um, career path, if you want to call it, in carts and then then into cars and then being a part of Nissan and, and then later on in life getting the opportunity to drive, not not with Mark, but in the team of the Holden Racing team, um, which was naturally through Mark that that come about. Um, that would have been great to him and I to be able to team up together if we could have. 
Well, he tried to get away from you, though. He, he pulled an <laughs> appendix operation to get out of being in the, yeah. in the garage with you the first time. Exactly right. That was, yeah, that was bizarre. Like, it's just come on so quick. And that was that week of sand down that just all of a sudden happened. It was, and, we're, and at the time, we were trying to f- work out who to team up with me because Nathan pretty moved over with uh, Todd because Todd and Mark were going to drive together anyway. And then... Uh, who could they could put with me? And I said, Jimmy, Jimmy, can we get Jimmy? Because Jimmy drove the year before, and um, but we couldn't coax Jimmy out of retirement. He said, No, I've had enough. I'm, I've decided I'm not going to race one again. Um, and then we ended up getting Tony down to Tony Longhurst down, and that was all sort of all done the day before the first practice session. It was it was bizarre, bizarre. And, and it's funny, a guy you would have never thought you'd team up with, given you raced against one of the for. So many years, your dad was building engines for him for a time. He was in the BMWs when you were in the, the Nissans and then the Sierras. And then he was a Ford guy for a bit. He was a B&H Commodore bloke. So um, it was a very, very unlikely one-off weekend where you two got together yeah. in Scapey's car. That's exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> um, Liam Briggs has got a question here, Glenn. Why did you change? And this is actually covered in the book. Why did you change to number five from number 30? Well, the 30 thing was always only because of the cigarette packet um, from the Peter Jackson days. And that's, so we carried on with that because of the Philip Morris connection. And naturally they wanted to sort of have some sort of association with the Peter Jackson, the 30 cigarettes. And that's why I was 15 in the Nissan days because they started making 15 packs back in the early eighties. And then um, the reason I went to five is because five was always my favorite number. And Brock had 05 all those years. And so five was out of play because of Brock with the 05. And then when Peter retired, um, I just inquired about if five was available then and, and, it, and it came up and that's when I went. So I've always wanted to run my favourite number, which was number five, and that's the reason I transferred over to, to number five. And the number five continues because, of course, you sold the team to FPR, it became Tickford Racing, and it's still with them today. And the other thing with the five is my, my date of birth, the 5th of the 5th, 1965. I'm just missing one five. <laughs> I've got a lot of fives on my birthday, um, which makes number five. And I've always – my dad early in his – in his career, he used to run a Tirana and he used to have a fancy five on it. Always used to love that fancy five number. And always, as a kid, sort of better than my brain. And that probably was what made me have five as a favourite number was because of having that on the side of his car look really good. I'd be worried if your birthday was five of the 555 because we would have instantly added 10 years to your age. <laughs> so it would have made you 38 instead five. of 28. Uh, <laughs> um couple more questions. Uh, Miles Healy, I've always wondered with the drivers who drove for cigarette brands, did you ever smoke or did it convince you to even try it? Never, ever smoked. Like a- I think that's the, that's the great irony with all this cigarette advertising. And as a young kid growing up, I've never smoked, but I watched mm-hmm. you race Peter Jackson and Scafie in Wingfield and Brock in Marlborough and never swayed me. Never, ever. Like, I, I, like I've... I've as a kid, got drunk one night and had a had a drag and made me sick as a dog. So I never ever touched <laughs> him. So no, I never. I suppose when you're in, if you're very dedicated to fitness, health, and and your and your sport of, as a profession, 
those things are quite you shy away from a lot because you want to you you just see the impact on that cigarettes what they're going to do but then you I look at my look at Johnny Bow. He used to smoke all the time. Even I've got he, photos of him standing on the podium having absolutely. a drink curry in the background. He'd hop out of the race car. And he'd have a cigarette going like chain smoking. So it didn't affect him as driving, but it didn't influence me to want to smoke either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, uh, Zane's question: Why did you use an open face helmet throughout basically your your entire career? Well, more so because of the claustrophobic effect you get from having a full face helmet, um, and the you're breathing your dirty air all the time. So I always found the open face helmet visually side vision was m- much in, improved with an open face helmet. Um, even though you got mirrors, you still like to have that sort of side peripheral vision uh, thing, and I always found that good with an open face, and just the coolness. It's just See, back in the early days, didn't have that venting stuff that most of them have now for full-face helmets, which keeps that breeze going around your, your face and around your, no, your nose and stuff. So um, the open face always, uh, I just felt so comfortable with. Even my first ever go-kart race was with an open face with a, a sort of a visor put on the front of it to, to, uh, to sort of protect my eyes. So I've, I was so used to being an open-face helmet all my life. Really, I drove one year with a full face, got through the first stint at Bathurst and felt terrible and, and tossed it. And the second stint, I put my open face back on and never went back again. Yeah, it did look strange that year at FPR when you had the full face on. There's some photos of it in the book, actually. And you have to do a double take to remember that it was you because it just is <laughs> totally not the season that everyone knows and loves and remembers with the, the well, open the, face helmet. The other problem is, Aaron, is... I, I talked to myself a lot while I was driving. So when I had a full face on it, I could actually hear what I was saying and I didn't like it. So I went back to the open face. I couldn't hear what I was saying because it was getting out. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that famous vision, that I think, was... Uh, I'm not sure if it was the, the Channel 7 era. It might have been by the Channel 10 era by the time we got into V8 supercars where they... They found the vision of you at maybe at Winton or somewhere in qualifying, talking yourself up. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah. Trying to find some extra speed and punch it off the corners. And, and you would have had no idea you were doing it until you saw that video. No, no I've always, um, well, I think everyone probably at a, at a level when you're pushing yourself, you, you're, you're in, internally in your brain telling yourself to push harder, push harder, push harder. Well, I was, vis- I was verbally saying it, I suppose. <laughs> verbally diarrhea was coming out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helped because you did go fast for, for many, many years in many, many races. W- one more question here from Matthew via Instagram. Did you have any superstitions before the start of any races? Anything that I know there's some guys who have to put their gloves on in a certain order, left and then right, or they, they have a process. Were you like that at all? No, never had. 13, 13 and green was the only two things I had superstitions about. But um, no, I didn't have any. Like, not like Alan. Alan always had to wear a certain Jonesy. pair of red underpants. Yep. Oh, AJ. Yeah, we heard yep. about the red undies. Yep. He had to wear the, and he's, even when he was with us, he still wore the red underpants. But no, I didn't I'm have a bit, I'm a bit worried that you know what underpants <laughs> your teammate was wearing. When you're standing in the truck putting your overalls on, you see them standing there in red underpants. Because Jonesy was never shy of being only in his underpants. <laughs> <laughs> he spent most of his life only in his underpants. 
<laughs> I think that's a, another quick thing to touch on too, is that there's some Ripper AJ stories in the book, but was it the day that he, he belted an official, allegedly, or uh, I'll just add that in there just in case, yeah. but um, it was the best he ever drove for you. He got Absolutely. so fired up that he went out there and smashed the field. Absolutely, he won. He won that weekend, um, won, those, won that race on the Sunday. And, um, yeah, that was an official was giving him a hard time when he was coming in and he gave him a touch-up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, yeah, certainly when Alan... Uh, was really uh, wanting to uh, have a go. He was exceptionally good driver. Exceptionally, he was always he was exceptionally good driver, regardless. But he'd also have his on days and his off days, which I think sort of at the end of the Formula One thing when he got out of the sort of the Williams era, I think he'd sort of got to the point where he'd had enough of doing that and couldn't have those on days all the time, and then went back later, which if you look back on it now, he probably would have been handy to stay another year because he would have won the World Championship the following year, which Keggy Rosberg, I think, won it that year mm, when he took yeah. over from Allen. Yeah. So maybe those off days were because the red undies were in the wash. Maybe. But uh, he actually, you, you, you wouldn't believe it. This was the red undies thing went back to following one days and the red undies he used to wear back then cut a piece off and sew it onto the next pair. So that the, oh, wow. the undies from those days were actually a piece off them. This is the that's, first time our podcast has ever gone into driver's undie land, that's for that's, sure. <laughs> that's superstition, isn't it, when you take the material wow. from the original ones. That's, that's bringing it a long way down the line. That's what that is. That's, uh, that's hey, if it, mentally, if it mentally makes you feel that you're going to uh, get a result from doing that, why does it matter? Like. Yeah. Go for well, it. I reckon go for it. Whatever works. Whatever that's works. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's the end of the questions. We had a pile more, but we can't get through them all. So thank you to everyone for sending them through to our National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions. We also Now, you, my friend, twice topped the top 10 shootout at Mount Panorama. 94, 96, when you famously forgot something very important mm. to do up your helmet, Glenn. But... Point of the matter is that the top 10 shootout is something that you were very good at over the years. And on the podcast, we do the Motor Focus top 10 shootout, which is brought to you by mates at Motor Focus, who are the home of quality scale models. They stock all the big brands and much, much more. Motorfocus.com.au, or you can go and visit them. They're up in your sunshine state there in Queensland. Unit 9, number one Stockwell place in Archerfield, Queensland. I reckon there's a few Glen Seaton model cars, by the way, that are probably in stock there from over the years. But the top 10 shootout is basically our fancy form of word association. I've got a list of names and things. You tell me the first word that comes to mind and you can't repeat and use the same word for multiple people if you can get away with it. Sound mm -hmm. okay? Okay. You're nodding, but you're not sure where this is going. No, I'm going. Go on. Go away. What's the word that springs to mind when I say Alan Jones? Um... Funny. I was going. Uh, don't say undies. I probably should have said <laughs> too. Uh, Mark Scaife. Uh, um, what was the word I said before? Um, um, determined. Mm, good word. Peter Brock. Um, flamboyant. DR30 Skyline. Heap of shit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can I say that? Three words, but if you hyphen them, it's one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we only want one word. Well, I think you could probably keep the tradition from Thomas Mezzer's podcast from a few Shit. weeks ago alive. Shitbox was his term for so many cars he's driven. Shitbox, yeah. So you, you, you can use that. You can borrow that from Thomas. Uh, a guy who we haven't spoken about, but he's covered in depth in the book, uh, Ken Potter, the former Philip Morris executive who worked with Tiger for many years. He's no longer with us, sadly, but um, a, a huge part of your career and, and, and your racing life. What's the word that springs to mind to, to describe him? Uh, my father figure. Yeah, great. Great word. Perfect word. There's plenty more about KP in, in the book. Uh, Neil Crompton. Uh, I've got to justify one for Neil because he's, he's good in so many areas. Um, to put one word to him is very difficult. So um, uh, a workaholic, okay, actually. Yes. Workaholic. Yes. He is a good workaholic. Word. He is. Uh, I can vouch for that one for sure. Gold Coast Indy. Car destroyer. It is a car destroyer regardless if you hit the fence or not. It's expensive, no matter whether you win or lose. Uh, John Bow. Uh, one of my uh, hardest um, opposition in my career that I raced against. You say hard? Hard is the word, you reckon? Hard, yeah. One, yeah. one of my yeah. hardest. Yep. Uh, Mike Raymond. I would say um, one word that a word that comes up for Mike Raymond when you hear him is uh, the father of Australian motorsport. Nice, and to round off, Bathurst. Uh, inspirational. Oh, I like it. I like it. Nice. Well, you've survived the Motorfocus Top Ten Shootout, Glenn. I don't think you took any wheels off or banged any fenders on the guard rails on the way around. So. <laughs> You've done better than some of our previous guests who uh, really struggled, but you nailed it. Well, well bold. Well bold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks again, mate. We really appreciate the time to sit down and chat. There's plenty more that we could go through for, we could probably fill 25 episodes of our podcast, but the reality is that the new book is out this week. Yep. It is CETO, the official racing history of Glenn Seaton, 320 pages, hardcover. It includes the car histories of, all of your team's cars from the Glen Seaton Racing and Ford Tickford Racing eras, piles of unpre uh, previously unpublished photos, great insights and stories that are way deeper and longer that we can go into on this particular podcast. Mate, it's a real credit to you for not just what the book has become, but what your career has been. And we look forward to seeing what's ahead for you in the future. And if anyone sees you at a caravan park, shout your 150 lashes and uh, crank, up the, cr crank the Fleetwood back. I'll be, I'll be my friend forever. <laughs> you, you're an easy friend one beer in your mates good deal Cito thanks again great to chat thank you oh how good was that Glenn Seaton in great form on the Zoom call when I caught up with him very recently for our latest edition of the V8 Sleuth podcast of course the book we mentioned it through the pod jump on the website to order your copy now great Christmas present. If you're a Ford fan, Seton fan, motorsport fan, or you just like a really good read, this is a book for you. Jump on the website bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. And when you're in the online store, you'll know that we've also got some signed Glenn Seton posters 
of some of his iconic race cars. There's the 1990 Sandown 500 winning Sierra, uh, the 1993 championship winning Peter Jackson Falcon EB, and his two Bathurst pole sitting cars from 94 and 96. There's a poster for each. They're all signed by Glenn. We've only printed 100 of each of those posters signed by Glenn. So if you're buying the book, you may as well buy some posters as well. Put on the man cave or to frame and put on your wall. It's a really cool thing and there's not many of them around. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the podcast. We've been overwhelmed with response in the last few weeks about the Mark Scaife episode, the Thomas Mesera podcast. Uh, that one has really struck a chord with so many people. Thanks for all your feedback. Keep it coming. Keep the reviews coming. Give us the five stars and tell all your mates about the V8 Sleuth podcast too. Subscribe to our newsletter through our website, v8sleuth.com.au. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where we're really active as well. In the meantime, we're done for this episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast. Great to catch up with Glenn Seaton. We'll have plenty more in the weeks ahead to round out 2020. In the meantime, I'm Aaron Noonan. This is the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timkin. See you later. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.